This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Firstly, a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you now until noon. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning, madam. Good morning. It's good to be back. It's my first show for the year today. Oh, is it? it is. Are you sure about that? Yeah. <laughs> You're not just sleep deprived and saying yeah, that? No, exactly. I think it's my first everything for the year today. It feels like <laughs> not much sleep. Oh, there we go. The joys of having young children. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and Dr. Catherine, good to see you. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Now, you're all, we can talk about this now. You're all granted up now, aren't you? You got your, got your cash. Yes. Yay. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Yeah. Yes. It's, um, the Victorian Health Minister to announce some grant funding on Friday for cancer research. So I'm very excited that um, I have some funding to do some research continuing in exercise and lung cancer for the next four yep. years. So, yep. yeah, I feel extremely privileged to yes. be able to continue that work. That's fantastic. I, I, in fact, you know I know someone who uh, you helped with their recovery from cancer yes. um, tremendously well. And, and, you know, I keep going, can you fix my back? And she's like, I've got bigger fish. <laughs> <laughs> your I back is not important. <laughs> your back is not important. <laughs> anyway, that's great news that um, at least some people in Australia are getting some research mm-hmm. money because it's few and far between these days, but um, yeah. Now, in the studio, we actually have our first guest today because we're going to do our news at the end because we have a slightly different show today. We're going to go a bit deeper into some of the, the research that we'll be talking about. But first up, we have Lucy Weaver from the CSIRO, and um, Lucy was part of the FameLab contest a, a year ago, and we're going to talk a bit more about that. But Lucy, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Dr. Shane. Thanks for having me. Now, you work in an area which uh, I, I love this stuff because it, I find it really interesting, basically because I've got both a saltwater fish tank and a fresh water fish tank mm-hmm. and most of your work is around turning one into the other right it's sorting this salt water issue out that's the idea yeah that's what we're trying to do um so i work on polymers mm-hmm. um so a special class of polymers they're called stimuli responsive polymers okay um that all sounds really fancy um, <laughs> but it's actually not basically it's just plastic um so Polymers is a is a fancy term that's used to describe plastics. That's what scientists call it. We like to use fancy terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, what a what a polymer is is lots of different units um, in a chain. So poly means many, and mer means unit. So many units. So like DNA. Uh, exactly yeah. like DNA. Mm-hmm. Yep. Except the units are that in a polymer chain are a little bit different to the units in say DNA or polysaccharides, which mm. are sugars. Um, so depending on the units that you have in your chain, you can give um, plastics different properties. So, you know, everyone is familiar with plastic shopping bags, which are really um, scrunchy and um, flexible, um, but also you're familiar with plastic pipes, which are rigid um, and hard to break. So, mm. you know, they, they, they have different units in them, which give them those different properties. Yep. Um, so the plastics that I make um, have special properties in that they respond to a stimulus, and that stimulus can be temperature, or it can be UV light or a change in pH or something like that. And when you change um, the external solution of the, or sorry, the external stimulus of the, um, that the polymer is in, its environment, that causes it to respond in some way. Okay. Yeah. And so, so let's, um, let's talk about the, before we come back to the polymer and your sure. stimulus, because I think it, the, I can see where these things are going to connect up. 
How do we normally go about removing the salt from salt water? Because this is a big issue around the world. Not, yeah, not just, not just for drinking, but, <laughs> but for everything else. When you get salt contamination in, you know, water where you, you otherwise would use it in farming practices yep. and so forth, or, or, you know, the dreaded desalination plants, you know, yeah. which, um, <laughs> which to be fair, you know, if they're, they're environmentally driven by, by good sources of energy aren't a big problem at all. But ha- what's the normal way to extract water, uh, wa- pure water from salt water? Yep. Um, so the normal way that it's done, I mean, there's a variety of different processes, processes that you can use, um, but generally they're filtration processes. Um, so a big one that's used in desalination is reverse osmosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically, yeah, forcing the water through a semi-permeable membrane and the water gets through, but the salt doesn't. Okay. Um, and there's other ways. So there's things called ion exchange, um, which capture the salt as well. Um, you can also use distillation. So that's heating it up and the water is, you know, um, boiled off basically and you um, collect that down in its pure form Um, can you answer why does the water boil off without the salt um because the water has a higher boiling point well yeah so and there's no way to get the salt in there i mean i always wondered about that i mean everyone says oh you just boil the water off and leave salt but you know it's it's curious to me as to what you know i mean you can boil all sorts of fluids Mm. and once it's in solution always i always found it fascinating Mm. that it doesn't uh, i mean water's a freaky fluid it's a freaky fluid people talk about it like it's normal but it's freaky the other thing that I've always been interested in is where does the salt go? Do, do we do we keep the salt? Do they use it for another yeah. purpose? Or? Yeah, it is. It's often reused in um, yeah for different things yeah. basically. Yeah. Do, is, is it ever going to like edible salt? Like does it? Uh, or is yeah, it, often. Yeah, yeah, it can be used. Hmm. I've always wondered that. Whenever I put salt on something, I got the word yeah. brine in my head. For I mean, some lots reason. of people yeah. like chips, so yeah, <laughs> 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 got to keep that chip industry that's going. Important. <laughs> right, so we got we got all these standard ways to remove salt, but but they're in, they're energy intensive, right? I mean, that's that's the. Big they're issue. usually energy intensive, yeah. so that's the idea with this um, technology. Um, if it comes to fruition, the idea is that you can use a small change in temperature at you know something much lower than 100 degrees, for mm, example. Mm. Um, and just by changing it in a few degrees, you can get this change in the polymer sample. Mm. Um, yeah. So and, that, and that would stop the salt moving through the polymer? Um, ideally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how far along is this now? Um, so I've been working on this project for three years, um, and I'm still developing the polymer technology. Um, but unfortunately, my contract is ending in a couple of weeks. So, um, you know, as science goes, you just have a three-year contract and, yeah. So I'm currently just writing up my last paper on, on this work, so... <clears throat> Hopefully it will continue. We'll, well the, have to see. You know, the head of Sorry does listen to this program, so I'm, <laughs> I'm sure this will be sorted out by well, the end of the day. You never know. Um, <laughs> it, it's sad, though, isn't it, when you hear about these technologies, which could put put Australia in an amazing position mm. worldwide in terms of um, just in terms of the not only what we can contribute to the world, but also the financial gains for the for the country and and the return on investment mm. in, in exactly. us paying your salary for three years. Exactly. And yeah. what we're going to drop it at the 80, 90 percent mark? This just seems, frankly, uh, sorry, I, stupid. <laughs> I don't know if it's at that stage, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a hugely collaborative project that needs, you know, expertise from lots of different areas yeah. to make yeah. it happen. So. Well, look, hopefully it'll go well. Now, let's, um, let's talk about FameLab because you did yes. really well in this contest last year and I, I emceed one of the Melbourne events about three or four years ago. Dr. Lauren was one of the finalists way back then. She did okay, but she didn't win. <laughs> 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 Tell us a bit about FameLab because you're, you're a big part of it last year. Yeah, FameLab is uh, one, probably one of the biggest science communication competitions in the world, I think. Mm, yeah. um, so there's, it's held in about 25 different countries now, which is amazing. Uh, so basically the, the premise of the competition is to explain your research in three minutes to a general audience. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and the way that you submit your application is just by, you know, hooking up yourself with an iPhone or, you know, some sort of device to record a three-minute pitch. It doesn't have to be fancy, no animation, nothing like that. It's just you in a room. I mean, for me, it was very last minute. It was the lunchtime of the day that it was due, and I was like, oh, I really want to put something in, but I've got no time. So I just, like, sat myself <laughs> down in a meeting room and just recorded it for three minutes and sent yep. it off and went... I probably won't get picked. Um, and I did, actually. So um, I was lucky enough to go to the semi-final. So that was in the Melbourne Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, I presented a slightly different pitch. So I actually had a prop, which I made uh, using a plastic chain from Bunnings Warehouse. Cool. Um, and I had a, a piece of plastic rope in the um, in the middle of it, and I held the rope and the chain dropped, and it looked like it was um, shrinking in oh. response to the change in temperature. And then I held it the other way, and it expanded back out nice. um, as the temperature cooled down. Very clever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and from there, then I went on to the national funnels in Perth. Um, so first time being to Perth, it was very exciting. I uh, went in two days of training with Malcolm Love, who is a science communication guru, works with a lot of the different FameLab people around the world. Mm. Um, so, we, yeah, we got training in um, media, communication, all that type of stuff, and I did my first radio interview there, which was very exciting. Um, and, yeah, presented at the national finals, um, met, like, so many um, awesome communicators. I met Robin Williams, uh, mm-hmm. and I met Dr Chris Smith of the Naked Scientist yep. Yep. podcast. In the UK. Yep, yep. Um, and I actually, through talking to him, ended up recording a section on one of his podcasts, um, the, which is about salt, basically. The War on Salt was the name of nice. the, the series. Uh, um, and, and yeah, and I've just been amazed from going through FameLab about how many different people have contacted me about my research. So someone over in Canada who works um, in a company over there has contacted me. Um, and, you know, people who I, who I didn't realise listened to Radio mm. National, but when they heard my um, presentation replayed on there, they were like, oh, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so... And, and FameLab's run by the British Council, so... Mm. It know, is run by the British Council. They, they, they yeah. I understand, you know, through something that happened hundreds of years ago, have offices all around the world. They do, yeah. They're really heavily involved in the arts and yeah. education. Um, yeah. yeah. It sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Do you know if FameLab's open to anyone doing science or is it just PhD students? Is there some sort of restriction on people who apply to be involved? Um, FameLab is open to all PhD students and early career researchers. So I, I think there is an age gap. Uh, sorry, an age cutoff, but I'm not, in, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. You might have to check the website for yeah. that. There's an age um, cutoff. There is, yeah. yeah so you can't, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have far too much experience, so that would just oh, be unfair. You, yeah, yeah. You, you'd probably be all right, Catherine. You might get through, Dr. Lauren. You yeah. got through once upon a time. I think I'm now too old. So, and it's still, the competition's open at the moment, so um, yes, if anyone's open. interested, just get online, and I think it's famelab.org.au, and yeah. uh, have a look there. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it, as you say, it's an easy process to um It's super easy, in. yeah, you just fill out the application yeah. form, and yeah, you've got a week, so no need to rush it at the lunchtime mm. in the last minute. Uh, the, the, thing, <laughs> the thing I loved about this, which I was surprised at when I first learned about it and was in seeing the event, was I also got to teach um, some of the communication things, so I ran some of the workshops yep. here in Melbourne. And 
most competitions don't have that element. Mm. No, so they don't. Yeah. it wasn't you got through, but once you got through, then they started teaching you to do better, which was um, you know, it was free for the participants. Mm. So, it was you know, fantastic, it was yeah. yeah. Yeah, you do, you get a half day of um training in the semi-finals and then two full days nearly with Malcolm Love. So yeah, that's huge. Fantastic. It doesn't yeah, like my experience of it as well was you sort of actually forget it's a competition because you've got a whole day with all mm. of these colleagues in different areas of science and you're learning about communication and then at the end of the day you go, "Oh, hang on, we've actually got it." Yeah. <laughs> Now. <laughs> I know. We're all friends. We don't want to win her. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. But no, yeah. wonderful experience. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Lucy, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. And um, I hope your uh, career prospects uh, go, go well. And, and this is really some interesting work that you're doing on, on salt extraction. So good luck with that. And um, are you involved with FameLab at all this year or you just uh, remember with uh, fondness? Uh, just remembering with fondness and yeah. totally supporting it because it's a really great competition. Yeah. So, yeah, Excellent. I'll be back. <laughs> cool. Uh, Lucy Weaver's from the CSIRO working on smart polymers to clean up our salty uh, wastewater, which is pretty much everywhere, folks. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be coming back and talking with a couple of researchers from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute about a new way of tackling leukemia. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. You are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Professor David Huang from uh, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and also from the Institute is Dr. Mary Ann Anderson. David, Mary Ann, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. Good morning. Now, you two are working on something that we, we got you in because this was such a big deal. And when I read about this, I thought this is some amazing work. And we wanted to do a somewhat longer interview than what we normally do to give us a bit more time to explore. But it's basically looking at a, a real potential solution to leukemia, which is something that's um, such a huge problem. Mary, and I might ask you first, just on if you can give us an idea of the number of people who get leukemia yeah. in Australia and, and, and what the outcomes are. So one of the leukemias that we work on uh, particularly is called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Mm-hmm. And this is actually the most common uh, adult leukemia in Western countries. It affects about four to six per hundred thousand per year here mm-hmm. in Australia. So it's actually a very common, well, it's a moderately common problem amongst our population, particularly as people age. Yeah. And, and leukemia, just to, to give us a bit more on that, I mean, this is a cancer of the blood. That's what, what does that mean? Yeah. So chronic lymphocytic leukemia can come in a, a variety of different forms. In uh, some forms, it's quite an indolent disease and grows slowly. Uh, people might notice an accumulation of lymphocytes in their blood. Mm-hmm. So their blood tests look abnormal, but patients are quite fine for many, many years in some cases. Uh, In other cases, the disease can progress much more quickly and people find that their normal blood counts are falling and uh, they can develop anemia where their red cells are low or thrombocytopenia where their platelets are low and they have a tendency to bleed. In some cases, people can also develop uh, large lymph nodes uh, or spleens. So they have these um, quite large masses under their arms or under their neck, for instance. Uh, And in those cases, people require treatment to try and bring the leukemia down and um, help them to feel well again. Mm. So, okay. So, I mean, it's a significant problem in Australia. Yes, it is. Does, in terms of numbers, how does it compare to something that people are more aware of, like, say, breast cancer, for example? Yeah, so it's not as common as breast cancer, which affects 1 in 11 women. Yep. Uh, but it is, uh, in terms of the overall burden of disease, it, mm-hmm. it actually um, is about the fourth most common cancer. Uh, and 
more people die of uh, leukaemia and uh, related blood disorders than other solid organ cancers uh, because they can be more aggressive. Right, right. Now, that's some, some good background. What I want to do now is I want to talk a little bit about how, how the two of you got into your respective fields. So, David, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be essentially a, a you know a blue sky researcher in the sense that Walter Eliza Hall Institute. Oh, that's very kind of you, Shane. So my background is that I trained originally as a doctor and one of the things like Mary and I used many years ago to look after patients with leukemia mm-hmm. and it was quite clear even then that many patients with leukemia really uh, didn't have very good treatments and one of the opportunities and that's a really a tremendous progress in basic research over the last 20-30 years is that we've been able to apply basic science to understand uh, why leukemia occurs and because we can now understand the basic mechanism by which leukemias can arise, uh, we've been very interested in using that understanding to develop better therapies and what we've been working on is really, we hope, uh, contributing mm-hmm. towards that goal. I think it's really, uh, we would say, a game changer because um, it, it's not just uh, uh, trying to kill the cancer cells non-specifically but really understanding what drives the cancer cell, what keeps them mm-hmm. alive and designing very specific treatments mm. to, to kill those cancer cells. Now, you started off as a doctor, so, I mean, what, what dragged you into the lab? I mean, uh, did you have to give up your sports car? I mean, how, <laughs> what? I, 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 I gave up. I know what they pay people in the lab, and it's not that great. <laughs> yeah. So the, I, I gave up a few things, but... Uh, for, for in return for that, I think um, I hope Marianne shares with that. I think the the, the really exciting thing about uh, basic research is that you not only look after the patients, but you can actually take the samples from the patients and actually mm. test them in the laboratory and try to understand why that patient is feeling ill. And I think you know to be able to do that really takes you one step further than just uh, prescribing a treatment. I think that to mm, me yeah, is a really yeah. exciting. Yeah, so you're part. still you're still engaged with the patient therapy in that regard, aren't you? I, it, Indirectly, and of course, I'm, it's been fantastic opportunity for me working with colleagues such as Marianne. It's, it's mm. not only fun; it's, it's very fulfilling. Yeah. Now, Marianne, tell us a bit about how you got to yeah. where you are now at WeHo. So, I trained as a doctor, and I've spent most of my career working on the wards with patients. And I think one of the things that I really was struck by as I um, finished my training in hematology was that. For many patients, although we have much better treatments now, for many patients, um, after a certain point, we actually don't have good treatments for mm. them. And, you know, in many patients, the journey comes to a point where you, you can't actually reverse the process. And, and um, for me, that was, you know, qu- being, being involved in a number of quite heartbreaking situations where you can't... Um, make people better anymore and I think that really inspired me to try and uh, go and work with people like David so that I could help to develop new drugs that would not only turn the process around for patients but also not cause as many side effects as some of the traditional drugs that Mm. we have and I think that's what's been very exciting about this project because we now have a drug that um, not only specifically targets the leukemia so it works better than perhaps some older drugs but it also um, doesn't have the same toxicities as the traditional yeah. treatments because those treatments sort of just kill like a nuclear weapon whereas this drug uh, targets the actual abnormality within the leukemia cells so yeah. it kills the leukemia cells preferentially to normal cells now you're gonna have to answer a question yeah. for me because this this is something that i've i've heard but i'm not sure of the details um my understanding is with certain cancers you can give a person a treatment say a chemotherapy treatment or, or whatever and you wipe out you know the cancer essentially yeah. but then when they come back 
10 years later, five years later, whatever, and the, and the cancer has reasserted itself. Yeah. The exact same treatment that was successful before just fails. Is, is yeah. that right? And, and is leukemia in that, that group? Look, sadly, um, that is the case for many patients. So although the leukemia may re- respond quite well initially, when it comes back or if it becomes refractory to the treatments that we've mm. got, uh, for those patients, the options are very limited, and that's why th- this new class of drugs has been a real game changer because it's given these people um, a drug that does work in in people who you wouldn't normally expect to get a good response from standard treatment. Okay, and uh, just give us an idea of what it's like in the clinic. I mean, what sort of conversations do you have with people? Uh, you know, my 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 office at work is you know partly in the B Triple C building, yeah. and I see people in the foyer yeah. all the time. And whenever I I have a bad day and I walk through that foyer, I think you know kick yourself in the ass and realise you're actually walking through this foyer healthy. Yeah. The conversations up until this point yeah. that you've been having with patients with leukaemia kind of been overly positive. Well, I guess I've been very lucky because uh, for the last six years I've been working in cl- predominantly in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And so um, people get referred to me um, usually when they've failed to respond to other therapies or okay. when their disease has come back after a lot of different therapies. And um, in the past, so 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had a lot, lot of things to offer them. But increasingly, because of the work that David and other people have done at Weekhite, we're having new drugs coming out that we can offer people, and they're offering people who uh, you wouldn't expect to get good responses with standard treatment. We're actually able to offer them uh, drugs that uh, they can expect to get a good response to. Um, 80% of people will respond to the new BCL2 inhibitor. Mm-hmm. And um, they can expect to not become unwell with the therapy uh, in the majority of cases. So that's been very rewarding for me personally. So, so what do you see? I mean, when you give some of these drugs to the patients, I mean, we all have this image, I think, of, of people losing their hair, of being grossly sick, you know, the whole thing. You're literally killing every part of the body and hopefully killing the cancer fastest. I mean, this sounds completely different, the sort of thing it you're doing. It is different. So, this new B- so the BCL2 inhibitors are a class of drug that target BCL2 and BCL2 is overexpressed in the cancer cells and by turning off this uh, protein you actually kill the cancer cells but not the normal cells and so what we've been able to see and I, I always refer back to the first patient we treated with the new BCL2 inhibitor back in 2011 mm. and this was a patient who'd fo- uh, failed multiple lines of therapy um, and had very few options and uh, what you saw was a very large uh, lump under the arm shrunk down very quickly. Okay. And, you know, in it, sometimes in a matter of hours we've seen lymph nodes going down uh, and the, the abnormal counts in the blood also shrinking down. So um, you actually see, can see the drug working before your eyes in a matter of hours. Yeah. Now, David, I want to go back now to some of the early stage work on this because it, I think people will find it hard sometimes to get around their head that, you know, Wham! was playing on stage when this work started <laughs> back in the late 1980s, right? I mean, this and is... so. So so take us back to to what was going on at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute then and the work, you know, as it started. I I mean, what initiated the work and and what were you focusing on? So this is really, in the broader scheme of things, a really good example of bed-to-bench site, Mm. back-to-bed and hopefully back-to-bench site. This this interaction to to us is is really, really important. So what we realise now for the best part of 50 years is, is that the, the underlying reason that people get cancers is that the cancer cells acquire genetic mutations. So these, in some rare cases, can be inherited 
inherited in other cases they're caused by the environment or the or uh, uh, by particular toxins. So people were looking uh, for various uh, genes that were abnormal, uh, that could explain cancer. And one of the second ones that were particularly interested in lymphomas uh, was this gene called BCL2. That's why it's called BCL lymphoma number two gene. Mm -hmm. And what my colleagues at Weihai, particularly then a PhD student there called David Bo, working with his supervisor uh, Jerry Adams and Suzanne Corey did was something really very remarkable and very, very special. Because up till 1987-88, our idea about cancer-causing genes was that these genes predominantly cause cancer cells to divide and grow quicker. So they will grow promoting basically what they pushing these cancer cells pushing these cancer cells go like the clappers yep. basically but what David realized that there's something really special about BCL2 because in experiments he was doing as a PhD student in the lab was that he didn't find it BCL2 didn't do anything of that sort mm. but what BCL2 did was something very special what it allowed cells to do was actually to survive okay so it didn't actually uh, promote uh, cells to divide and grow quicker, but it allows cells to survive. And that really led to a whole field to open up understanding how cell death occurs because it turns out in our bodies billions of new cells are made every day to mm. replace old ones. Of course, billions of cells need to die. And it, you don't have to be a very sophisticated mathematician to work out that once that process is slightly deregulated, you know, in other words, you I'd have more cell death or less cell death, you're going to run into problems very, very quickly. Mm. So in this case, what BCL2 did was if it's overactive in the leukemias and the lymphomas that Marianne had, had described, basically these cells do not commit suicide, do not die when they should. They basically hang around. And this concept that not only you get increased growth, increased uh, 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 division of the cancer cells, but also their inability to die and commit suicide as a cause of cancer. That concept was a basic game-changer and really mm. revolutionary thinking at, mm. at the time. Mm. So, David, you mentioned that that's the case for lymphomas and leukemias. Yeah. Is, is that the case in, uh, in the other cancers as well? So it turns out that in leukemia and lymphomas, it is very common that uh, this is due to overexpression or overactivity of BCL2. There are other ways in which the a uh, cancer cell can subvert this process of cell suicide. Sometimes it involves BCL2, sometimes it involves other genes. Mm -hmm. So your question is a very important one, of course, is that how general it is idea to all cancers, and we would say that it is probably one of the key changes in all kinds of cancer, and it's not always explained by BCL2, sometimes it's explained by mutations, other genes. Mm -hmm. Three, triple, One of the things that we were chatting about a moment ago was this idea of your first patient. Yeah. And, you know, you, you must have um, you must have had a very unusual experience there because you, you started them on this drug as, as a trial to see if the drug was safe for humans. Not that it would work for the cancer, but just that it wouldn't kill the, the yeah. patient. I mean, I mean, talk us through that because that's a... That's an unusual experiment, to, especially when you see the effects you did. Yeah. So um, the concept of phase one clinical trials is that you take uh, drugs that have been developed in the lab that have a theoretical basis that would work, and obviously they've been tested in animals as well, uh, to make sure that there's no obvious toxicities. So 
you have evidence from the laboratory from work um, that people like David have done that a drug is likely to be safe and effective. But, of course, uh, the results in an animal aren't the same as the results in people. Mm. And um, in a phase one trial, which is the first time we uh, introduce the uh, drug into patients, uh, we're looking to see, is this drug safe? That's, that's the only question we're asking. And um, actually the first three patients ever to receive this new BCL2 inhibitor were treated here in Melbourne. Um, and all three of them uh, had very dramatic, very early evidence of response. Uh, within a matter of hours, we could see that all three of them were responding to the drug. Um, but so one, hours? Yes, within a matter of hours. So uh, patients who had white cell counts of 40 or 50 by the afternoon, Within eight, six to eight hours, would have white cell counts of four or five. I mean, have they? How did they express how that felt? I mean, they must have felt literally felt different within the same day. Yeah. Look. Um, so, unfortunately, associated with this very rapid breakdown of mm. um, the cancer cells, uh, you can imagine that the bo- that's a huge load on the body to try and eliminate all yep. those toxins. And um, those patients actually all experienced a, a condition that we call tumor lysis syndrome, which is the cancer cells breaking down quite quickly. Um, and we've done a lot of work because obviously the phase one, the, the emphasis is state safety to try and uh, ameliorate the risks of this tumor lysis mm. syndrome. And um, for instance, those first three patients, we started at doses of 200 or 100 milligrams. We now start at doses of 10 or 20 milligrams and very slowly uh, work up to the higher doses. And that's actually reduced the problem of tumor lysis. So it's a double-edged sword. Mm. While on the one hand, you're seeing very rapid evidence of cancer destruction, you don't want to see such quick evidence because that can put too high a load on the body's ability to process the toxins from the dying cancer cells. It's hard to believe isn't it that you could actually kill one of your patients by curing their cancer too fast? Yeah, so (laughs) it it is unfortunately a problem that we do see in uh, haematology, not Mm. just in um, this kind of leukaemia but in a lot of different kinds of leukaemias and we even see it with um, standard chemotherapies so um, the challenge is to kill the cancer but not kill it too quickly yeah, yeah. Um, so that the body has a chance to process the the dying cells and, and can i ask about those first three patients yeah. are, are they cancer free now are they still with us uh so the out so those uh obviously i can't talk about individual mm. patients but uh what we saw overall was that 80 percent of people we gave this drug to responded the challenge however has been uh for all patients that um, over time, unfortunately, people start to relapse and mm. the disease does come back. And so that's one of the areas that David and I are working on in our laboratory to try and understand what are the factors that uh, make people resistant in the first place or help to um, make the drug well stop or help to contribute to the drug stop stopping working. Yeah. And so by trying to identify that, we can hopefully target it to the most appropriate people and identify combinations to stop resistance. Mm. So how is it the drug is actually given to the patients? So this drug is is a tablet. Uh, The patients take four tablets a day in the morning. Um, And for many patients, they've actually been able to go to work and they take their tablets in the morning the same way you might take a diabetes tablet and they go about their life. And what it's done is it's transformed for some patients who had a a death sentence. It's uh, basically allowed them to live normal lives now. David, given given what this drug does, given that it does change that particular series of chemicals that you know work uh, allow a, a cell to work out whether to live or die and so mm-hmm. forth. Uh, uh, I mean, 
Yes, yes, it obviously has a substantial effect on the on the cancer itself. Mm-hmm. But what about the rest of the cells in the body? Because you know they're, they're all trying to do this in a certain way too. You, you mentioned before that that imbalance between you know new cells and cells dying is off. Mm-hmm. You have a big problem. Uh, how, how does this drug affect everything else in that regard? So that's that's really been uh, the work of many people over many years trying to understand how this process of cell survival and cell death has uh, is is regulated and and i think um, that's really a critical part of of the basic research because it turns out that in our bodies uh, most cells don't rely just on bcl2 so bcl2 have a few close cousins to help them so in many cell types there's relatives of bcl2 to help do this job of mm-hmm. keeping cells alive. It just turns out that in some of these leukemia cells, they're particularly dependent on BCL2. Okay. So they're very susceptible to a drug that target BCL2. So that's why we think that the drug works so effectively against cancer cells, but not against normal cells, because other than BCL2, there are cousins helping BCL2 do the job. So even if you take up BCL2, those other cells are spared. Mm-hmm. And how many other forms of cancer have you looked at in terms of this same approach? So we've looked extensively at, of course, a range across uh, many related leukemias and some of those look very promising. There's a clinical trial about to start in, in breast cancer, for example, and we believe that the BCL2 inhibitor will work for other kinds of cancer, but usually in the co- context with uh, com- combining with other kinds of treatment. I think that's really the, 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 the next stage in this particular area, and I think that's really uh, all comes up from what I spoke about earlier, you know, understanding what are the genetic le- causes of that particular cancer and trying to pinpoint those for treatment. And to degree, what we're working towards for is not only a generic treatment for breast cancer, but even down to the individual pa- patients. So one of the big mm. areas that we're working towards is really this idea of uh, being able to personalize the treatment for the patient with cancer yeah. so that yeah. we can actually match what that cancer require to the best treatments we have. Mm. And, and it's the patient and the cancer, isn't it? Because each of the cancers is different genetically it, as absolutely, well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing I always found interesting that, you know, all three of us have the same cancer, but they're genetically different. Absolutely, absolutely. So that, that that's... I think this having a therapy that's tailor-made for the individual patient not only increases the chance of getting a cure, but hopefully also reduce any unwanted side effects mm-hmm. because you don't want to give a patient a treatment that is unlikely to work for that cancer. Yeah, yeah. Now, Marianne, let's just finish by talking about where we're at now because I think the, the interesting thing here is the Therapeutic Drugs Administration here in Australia has now approved this Correct. drug, which yeah. is... So we've got, we're, we're out of the clinical trial phase now where we're actually having this available for patients? Yeah, so um, the Therapeutic Goods Administration uh, licensed this drug uh, for use in Australia in uh, January of this mm-hmm. year, which is the first critical step to getting the drug to patients. Mm. Um, we have uh, ongoing phase two and phase three studies which are looking at uh, the use of this drug in combinations with other drugs, uh, looking at the drug uh, in other diseases, so beyond chronic lymphocytic mm-hmm. leukaemia, um, and also trying to target specific populations. So there are still trials open, uh, but increasingly, hopefully, the drug uh, access to the drug through the usual avenues will become uh, more available to patients. Mm. And what's it like in terms of costs and so forth? Is this something that people will be able to access? Because that's, uh, you know, I know a friend of mine a while 
back was looking at one of these new drugs for yeah. for brain tumor, and and we had to we had to had to crowdfund to support that person. Is this is this something that's going to be well supported? Do you think soon? Yeah. So the next step really is for the drug to become available on the uh, pharmaceutical benefits mm. scheme, and I, I believe that uh, that may be in process. Uh, but that's something that the government and and uh, industry are, are working on working at the on. moment. Yeah. Well, look, it's a spectacular outcome. Congratulations, both of you, and I know there is more than two of you involved in this. It has been a huge effort by a lot of people, but um, there'll be a lot of people out there who so many people are affected by this disease and other cancers, and hearing this sort of work is just fantastic. So congratulations and thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Professor David Hong and Dr. Marianne Anderson, both from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research here in Melbourne. If you want a good reason to support medical research and research in general in Australia, I think you just heard it. Three. Now, we've kind of reversed the show today, so uh, you had to wait a while, but we're up to the news segment. Dr. Lauren, you're, you're looking eager, so do you want to go first? <laughs> I'm, so I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I've today got my story on my little tiny smartphone screen, so I'm just thinking, I don't know if my eyes are up to it. <laughs> <laughs> I know mine wouldn't be. I might just have to make it up, no. <laughs> do, do, I'll, I'll tell people a funny story, of just, just so they get an insight into what Lauren's really like as a human being. <laughs> um, one day there, I was, I was taking a photo of the team, and I said, oh, my, my phone's not focused. Thing. And she looked at me as an optometrist, a, you know, optical person, really rudely and said, it's not the phone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what that's, they, that's what she calls bedside manner. <laughs> I think when you're a friend, you get the very, you know, yeah. be- pared down bedside manner. <laughs> so, Miss 2020, and I know that's the wrong term for this sort of site. Thank but you, 6-6. Six, six. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, I was reading this week about Zika virus. So, you know, obviously it's what, something that's been saying in, in our media and in our um, consciousness for the last year, few years or so. Um, so we still have 70 countries and territories around the world that have active Zika transmission, and obviously it, it makes the news fairly regularly still. And there's been a paper that's come out this week that's actually looked at why it is that it's so dangerous for, for babies. And I actually found it very interesting in that we didn't really know up until now. So yeah. the problem with Zika virus is that adults can, can get it and it's actually usually fairly low um, detriment to the adult. So it's actually not that dangerous to adults, but it's extremely dangerous for pregnant women. And the reason is that often babies... Um, who, who, you know, when the, woman, the mother contracts Zika, babies are often born with what's called microcephaly. So they have a, a very small head, uh, developmental delays, seizures, they're often blind and they have hearing impairments. Mm. It's, it's a very traumatic and, and awful outcome. Uh, and so the question that the scientists looked at from this university in Texas was what exactly happens? What, what causes this microencephaly? And what they've found is that there's actually two lineages of the Zika virus. So there's an African Zika virus and an Asian Z- Zika virus. And it's actually the Asian lineage, which is the one that causes this small head and developmental delays in the, in the babies. And they've found that it's actually to do with stem cells. So the virus actually affects the, the brain stem cells in the fetus and stop them from being able to develop in, into a, into a proper brain. 
The reason that it's quite interesting is that they did a study looking at three different brains that of, of um, babies that had had the Zika virus and unfortunately hadn't survived. And what they found was there was a really big difference between the gene expression in the three different brains. So it seems that what's happening is that the Zika virus is, you know, infecting the mothers, affecting the babies, but affecting the babies in different degrees. And so the question now is, why is this difference in gene expression happening and how can you actually target that for a treatment? So what they're thinking they might be able to do is actually uh, target the the, um, the glial cells, which are what pr- 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 um, provides the support for the brain and, and they actually might be able to help with the gene expression of this, you know, that's affected and try and, you know, improve the outcomes if un- someone unfortunately is infected. Mm, mm. Interesting stuff. Yeah, so yeah. and I think it, it kind of ties back in a little bit to what we were just talking about with the cancer, you know, in that yeah, everyone expresses these sorts of things differently. differently. Yeah, yeah, so it's how do, how do you treat? Watch this space. More mm. to do. That's it. Dr. Catherine, supplements. Do we need them? Well, I won't answer that question, but I, I will. Um, I will talk about vitamin D, and there has been lots, um, lots in the media and the news and in research circles recently about vitamin D and, it, and its benefit on health for a number of different outcomes. But particularly, I was interested in some research out of the University of Birmingham this week about the impact on muscle function, and they published their work in the journal Plus One uh, just a few days ago. So, a, as you know, vitamin D, we predominantly get this from exposure to sunlight. Mm. We also get it uh, in small amounts from some foods uh, like fish and red meat and, and eggs. And some people who have certain conditions or diseases do take vitamin D supplements as well. But most of it comes from exposure to the sunlight. And the vitamin D is in our body in two forms. There is an active form and an inactive form. And in particular, these researchers were interested in the active form of vitamin D. And we have lots of research to show the role of vitamin D for bone health. And uh, often people who, ha- who lack vitamin D have very weak bones and very high risk of bone fractures. But we don't have a lot of information about how it actually impacts on muscle health. And But we do know that people with deficiencies in vitamin D suffer from having weak muscles and that can have a number of consequences. So these researchers in in the UK did a study with 116 healthy individuals who didn't have diseases. Uh, Their range of ages from from 20 years of age up to 74 years of age. So looking at people with with different varieties of, um, of muscles, we know people's muscles get weaker as they age. They did a variety of tests. They looked at blood and urine samples. They looked at the size of their muscles, the strength of muscles, the muscle functions so things like how quickly the muscle contracts and acceleration. Uh, they t- took muscle biopsies, so small samples of the muscle to look at genes. And they also used some technology they've just developed in their lab to very quickly identify these different forms of vitamin D. And the interesting results out of this study were they found that there were very high levels of active vitamin D in people with stronger and better functioning muscles. And this this has previously not really been well understood and it certainly wasn't the case for inactive vitamin D. Mm. So we have further information on the benefit of that. They also found uh, really evidence to support the fact that vitamin D is acting on the muscle itself and binding to these vitamin D gene receptors. Mm. So we know that it's directing, directly impacting on the muscle and that the, the researchers hypothesise that's why the, the vitamin D, high levels of active vitamin D influence stronger muscles and better muscles. So mm. lots of applications for health in the future. We can we can look at this for different diseases in people with vitamin D 
deficiencies and, and it may also apply over to sports and high-level performance as well. So mm. just, just a starting point, but lots to look at in it's the future. interesting stuff. Mm. I, I mean, I love the uh, the discussion around supplements because I, mm. I know it gets pretty heated and I know on the uh, previous program, uh, Radiotherapy, they talked a bit about supplements and there were some interesting comments there. I think, um, but for me, I, it's like any other area of science. Um, I, I, I follow the, the outcomes of the science mm. and if that means changing your mind about something and, you know, there's been a lot, you know, people commonly bag supplements out because of the, I think the, the commercial aspect of it. But as you said, if you're a person who has a particular condition that means you, you have poor uptake of some of these things, then, mm. They, they are literally supplements for the fact that you are not ingesting them properly or you're not, not taking or you have poor diet or whatever else. Mm, yeah. That's that's not a marketing scam. That's a medical need. Mm. And I think we have to be careful where we, we place our, our sort of ideas here. And, yeah, mm. absolutely. In fact, I was talking to a pharmacist yesterday about vitamin D specifically and supplements and there has been new data from clinical trials over recent months and, in fact, she's advising people with colds and flus or respiratory infections to take vitamin D for that basis based on new mm. clinical evidence. So it's a very cha- quickly changing field um, in the area of, of health and disease. Yeah, and there's also the element, I think, sometimes of what I would call the personal clinical trial. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm one of these people, I have a spoonful of uh, natural honey every day and I do it so I don't get hay fever. And I don't get hay fever. Mm. N equals one. One person, and I've talked to the you know the people who do all the the real you know Katie Allen and others down at the Children's Hospital about all, all the allergy work, and she said that kind of thing is really hard to prove in the trial because mm. it's so difficult to mm. do a, a trial where the ho- the honey has to be local to get yeah. the local pollens, and you have to have enough locals to take it on. Mm. So you know it's not to say it won't work; it's just say scientifically it's very hard to prove or disprove this anything. So for me, that works. I go with it. Mm. Um, I'm not going to stand up and write a paper about it because I can't do that mm. and if a paper came out tomorrow that said that it was all psychosomatic and they could prove it they'd say so be it um that might be true but as long as i'm still believing that yeah, that's working right <laughs> yeah. so yeah but i think we've got to be uh approach these things as scientists that's the that's the way we should do it when the evidence comes in we follow it and that's what we do mm-hmm. um now very quickly actually on that topic um there's some uh, new research that came out by a guy named Brett Finlay from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver who's been looking at all of the things that sort of are protective against um, kids growing up with asthma. And he's looked at a whole of these different, you know, microbes and so forth that people, kids are exposed to. And there's one that's interesting because there's a whole lot of bacteria that tend to be protective and we talk about the gut microbiome and so forth. Mm. But there's a particular type of fungus um, called Pichia or Pichia that actually seems to be linked to the development of asthma. Now they're correlated, no necessarily causation here, but but this is one that doesn't have the correlation with protection. Mm. It, it's more correlated with kids having asthma. So there's there's a lot of lot of work to be done there, but it was an interesting first sort of um, first bit of information mm. coming out that one of these things could be problematic. Where do you find it? Uh, soil, of course. You know, soil's got all sorts of crap in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, more importantly, and I think this is what I'm going to watch out for, is um, milk and cheese, raw milk and cheese. It's mm. not processed, so that. That could be something to, to look out for. But mm. anyway, we are out of time on that note. Uh, you know, thank you very much, you two, for coming in. It's been a great show, I think. 
It's been great. Yeah, yeah. thanks, good, Dr. Shane. Good to see you, Dr. Catherine. Dr. Lauren, you're going to go home and get some sleep? Yeah, <laughs> if only I could stop the nine-month-old from moving. <laughs> He's a little bit active. <laughs> uh, just get your husband to do it. <laughs> just sneak off, sneak off. Just say you've got caught in traffic, sleep in the car. Yeah, you? why not? That's a good plan. I like that. <laughs> Hopefully he's not listening. <laughs> can't see why he would. Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to Triple R this morning. And we're going to hand over now to the great team from Eat It. They're going to cook up a storm. They always make me feel hungry going home. Have a great Sunday. And remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.